Morning. We have reached sign number five of the seven signs in John's Gospel this morning. And sign number five follows closely on from the one before it and indeed it is quite strongly connected to it. Where they differ, and in fact where this particular sign differs from all of the other signs, is in those to whom it is delivered. All of the other signs have been very public signs. Not all of them happened in front of crowds of 5,000 or more, but they all happened in very public places where anybody could have seen that particular sign. But sign number five has a very specific audience. This one was given first to that inner circle of 12 and it has been passed on to the rest of us through their eyewitness accounts. So if you recall sign number one, Jesus changed water into wine at a wedding and the effect of this we were told was that the disciples put their faith in him. And then by the time we get to sign number two, clearly Jesus is getting a reputation for healing uh, because people are travelling long distances to be healed by him or to have one of their relatives healed by him. By sign number three, the Jews, no doubt uh, it means the religious authorities of the day, uh, they're losing patience with Jesus. They're unhappy about what they perceive to be his flouting of the, the Sabbath laws. By, you know, remember he told the, the paralysed man to pick up his mat and walk. And they're unhappy by what they perceive as him making himself equal with God the Father. Then after sign four, which was the feeding of the 5,000, we're given a bit of further insight about where sentiment is heading uh, with Jesus. We're told when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself. So whilst the religious authorities were persecuting Jesus, the crowds have got other ideas for him. And if you put yourself in their situation, they are living under Roman oppression. Suddenly there appears this man who seemingly can do anything. He's been able to heal people. He's able to drive out demons. He can perform mighty feeding miracles. And you've seen many of these things with your own eyes. And you start to wonder about the difference that that type of power could make in dealing with these Roman authorities. And you want him to be king. But Jesus is not interested in any adulation from the crowd. Nor is he interested in any earthly title, and so he withdraws from them to the solitude of the mountain. And that's where we pick up today's story. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, 
And we're going to begin reading from verse 16. John chapter 6, verse 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So this is after, straight after the feeding of the, the 5,000. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking out on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at, at the land to which they were going. Now, this account of Jesus walking on water can be found in three of the Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, in Mark and in John. And this account here in John's Gospel is the shortest of the three by quite a way. And chances are, if you've heard this passage preached before, it wasn't preached from John's Gospel. Chances are, if you are familiar with this story, you're probably thinking, oh, hang on, where's the bit about Peter getting out of the boat and walking to Jesus? That is, of course, Matthew's focus in his telling of this story. He's interested in this interplay between faith and doubt and his emphasis that you'll often hear preached when this, this, past, this story is preached, the emphasis is often on keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, having faith, to, you know, having faith to follow his command and do what he says without wavering. That is not John's concern here. John's concern is to keep Jesus front and centre. He's written for a very specific purpose and we've emphasised that just about every week throughout this series. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So any details that might distract from that purpose, John has left out of this account. Now recall that John's gospel was written after, most likely after the other ones were already circulating. So there's no need to include things that are already uh, known. The only words that are recorded in John's gospel in this whole um, scene are words that come from the lips of Jesus himself. Our passage today begins, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now, from Mark's gospel, we learn the reason why they got in the boat and they set off without Jesus, simply because he told them to. He sent them on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd and went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, maybe they were to go ahead and make preparations for the next day. 
Maybe they were returning the boat. Maybe he was simply dismissing them back to their families for the evening. We don't know, and it's probably not that important. It was dark, and evidently from John's Gospel, they had been expecting Jesus to join them at some point. Perhaps their intended journey sort of skirted the land, and they were expecting Jesus to come down the mountainside and join them at another point on the coast. Jesus doesn't do that. And again, we don't know the details as to why he didn't do that. We just know that he didn't join them on the waters as they were, as he, they were expecting and that those waters started to become rough. Now, rough waters are normally not a problem for experienced fishermen and there were likely many experienced fishermen on board this boat. They weren't tourists taking a day trip across the Sea of Galilee. And while at its widest point, this Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, at its widest point it's 21 kilometres, and that's quite a large lake, it's not enormous. And it is, after all, a lake. So you might think, well, how rough can it really get? It's only a lake. Well, most of the time, this is what the Sea of Galilee looks like. It is dead flat. But when the storms come, they can be sudden and they can be violent and they can be unpredictable. And this is due mostly in part to the location of the Sea of Galilee and to its topography. The Sea of Galilee lies 200 metres below sea level. It is the world's lowest freshwater lake. It is second only to the Dead Sea, which is not freshwater, it's salt water. The Sea of Galilee lies at the northern end of the Great Rift Valley, and it is surrounded by mountains. Some of those mountains are more than 600 metres high. So 600 metres, and then plus the depth of uh, the Dead Sea, uh, the Sea of Galilee, that's quite a difference in height from one to the other. Now, when the cold winds cross those mountains, that cold air drops suddenly to the lake below where it collides with warm, humid air. And anyone who knows anything about weather uh, will know that when you get a collision of two air masses that are of different temperatures and different moisture contents, you're going to get some storm activity. So this collision between the cold and the warm air mass creates swirling and unpredictable winds that can suddenly whip up those waves. It doesn't happen frequently, but when it does, the resulting storms can test even the most experienced fisher person. This is just last year. Uh, one of those types of storms devastated the infrastructure around the promenade and the tourist precinct of Tiberius. Now, there's no indication anywhere here in the story that the disciples at any point feared for their lives. There's no indication anywhere in the story that the boat was in danger of sinking, but we're simply told that the waters were rough 
they've already rowed five or six kilometres. And so now their arms are straining against the oars and they're battling a strong wind just to stay on course and to get where they're headed to. Matthew and Mark record that Jesus went out to them during the fourth watch of the night. Now in the New Testament, night was measured not in terms of hours, but in terms of the watches. There were four three-hour watches of the night. The first watch, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second watch, 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch, midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now these watches corresponded with the duty shifts for the soldiers, as no soldier could be expected to remain completely alert for the whole of the night and they wanted their soldiers who were on watch to be alert and to be ready for anything that was coming. And so they'd be rotated in and out on shifts to ensure that those who were on watch were ready for whatever might happen. Jesus comes to them, we're told in these other gospels, during the fourth watch. So these guys have been straining against these oars through the night until somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. All three of the Gospel writers emphasise that Jesus was walking on the lake or on the water. So stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus knows that his disciples are out in rough sea. He knows that they've been straining there against the oars right through the night. Now, if you are Jesus and you have at your disposal any kind of supernatural means of travel that you like, why would you choose to walk? Why not simply pick yourself up and transport yourself straight to the boat? Just like the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch and deposited him somewhere else. Why would you choose to walk out over the water all of that distance? And the answer to that question, I think, is the key to understanding this sign. Other biblical greats have miraculously walked through water. How many of them can you think of? There's more than just one mentioned in the Old Testament. Moses, of course, is the most obvious. He parted the Red Sea, stretched out his hand and his staff over the Red Sea, and most famously the sea parted, and he and all of Israel crossed through on dry land. But there was also Joshua. Joshua commanded the priests to stand in the Jordan River with the ark. And we're told that the river stopped flowing and the water piled up in a heap somewhere at a distance. And while the priests stood there with the ark of the covenant in the river, Israel was able to walk through on dry ground. But they weren't the only leaders of God's people to be able to do that. 
Elijah, uh, just before he was taken up to heaven, struck the Jordan River with his coat and the waters parted and he and Elisha were able to cross through. And then after he'd been taken up to heaven, Elisha repeated that miracle. He picked up Elijah's coat, struck the Jordan River with it, the waters divided, and he was able to cross back through again. Now all four of these miracles involving water crossings were a sign. They were a sign of God's anointing on them as chosen leaders. But all four of those crossings were on dry ground. And all four of them involved some sort of action, the holding out of the staff, uh, the standing in the water with the ark, the, the hitting the water with, with the cloak. But now here's Jesus, and he stands apart from all the others in the way that he crosses the Sea of Galilee to reach his disciples. There is no holding a staff or whacking the water or anything like that. He does it purely as an act of his own will. And of course the most obvious difference is that the water doesn't part. He simply walks upon that water himself. And that is critical and it sets him apart from all of those leaders who came before him because that is something that is reserved for God alone. Job chapter 9 verse 8, speaking of God, says, He alone has spread out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This is a very powerful and a very intimate sign that reveals to the disciples the true identity of this man, Jesus. He is not just another leader being raised up for God's people. Many of the biblical greats anointed by God had made miraculous water crossings, but God himself would be set apart from all of them because only he would actually tread on the waves of the sea. And so now here was Jesus, this man that these disciples had listened to and they'd eaten meals with and they followed. Here he is and he's striding out to them upon the waves. And you can almost hear pennies beginning to drop or the cogs starting to turn in their mind as their image of who this Jesus is, is further defined. Now, the first words out of the mouth of Jesus as he approaches the boat are these Greek words, ego emi. And here in John's Gospel, these words have been translated, it is I. These are very clever words that Jesus has chosen here as he walks out to his disciples because these very same words can also mean something else and they are very familiar words that you heard read to us in that Old Testament scripture reading that we had. Those words can also be literally translated as I am. 
I am he. Just as the same words were translated in the interaction with the Samaritan woman just two chapters earlier in chapter 4 where he declared to the Samaritan woman, um, I am. Here he says, I am. Don't be afraid. So Jesus walks on water, something scripture says only God can do, and then he refers to himself with these words, I am, the very name that God used of himself in the Old Testament. At this, the disciples receive Jesus into the boat and they are treated to a second miracle, which is often overlooked in this passage as they are immediately transported to where they were going. They've been straining all night trying to get there. Suddenly Jesus gets in the boat and off they go. They're there. You can imagine their heads must have been absolutely spinning. Everything that they'd seen and everything that they'd experienced in the last 24 hours. I wonder what went through their minds when they finally did get to lay down their heads that night. Were they just buzzing and full of excitement and anticipation? Were their minds beginning to grasp the enormity of all that they had been part of? And when they talked about these things among themselves, what, what on earth did they say to one another? Did Peter ever say to Andrew, you know, hey, when all of that bread appeared, did it remind you of anything? Or what about when he came to the boat and the first thing he said was, Ego Emi? What did you think of then? Maybe one day we'll get to ask the disciples exactly what they experienced. How many of you have been to any of these places? Um, Little Burke Street, Chinatown, place filled with the sights and the smells and the tastes of China. Or what about Victoria Street in Richmond, a place that is known as Melbourne's Little Saigon, a great place for all things Vietnamese, including a tasty bowl of pho if that's to your liking. Well, what about Foster Street in Dandenong? Have you been to Foster Street in Dandenong? Do you know what that place is known as? It's known as Melbourne's Little India Cultural Precinct. And the place just wafts with smells of curries and you can buy all things Indian from saris to, to spices in Foster Street, Dandenong. Spend some time in John chapter 6 and you will very quickly see that just as these are little Saigon and little India, John chapter 6 is little Exodus. You can't spend time in that chapter without being transported back to Israel's exodus from Egypt and their time in the desert. The New Testament as a whole contains many allusions to Exodus. John's Gospel in particular has a pretty strong concentration of them. 
But in this chapter that we've covered in the last two weeks, John chapter 6 and the signs that are within it is by far where it is most obvious. So let me show you what I mean there. So in general terms, uh, a couple of comparisons between Moses and Jesus. Both were prophets and leaders of God's people. Both were sent by God. Both performed miraculous signs. And we're told in Exodus chapter 4 and John chapter 20 that the purpose of these signs is linked to belief. Both of them journey up mountains and both of them have seen God. If we move down to the next section, which is what we covered last week, the feeding of the 5,000, Moses asks, where am I to get meat to give all these people? And Jesus echoes that question when he asks one of the disciples, where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? In Exodus, manna and meat are provided for the people to eat. And here, bread and fish were provided for the people to eat. In both instances, the people gather as much as they can to eat and there's plenty left over in excess. When the people ask what this is, Moses says to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Jesus goes one step further and says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then we come to today's passage. Both passages involve a sea crossing. In both passages, there is a strong wind involved. Moses walked through the sea on dry land, as had other great leaders of God's people. Jesus walked on the sea, a feat reserved only for God. Moses says, I am, has sent me to you. Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. These twin, twin miracles in chapter 6, signs, as they're called in this gospel, they are connected. And they serve to remind us of the exodus that brought Israel freedom from bondage in Egypt. They show us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises and together they point to a new kind of exodus that brings us freedom from bondage to sin. The second of these miracles, the one that we've covered today, is a clear sign that points to Jesus' identity. The disciples who were part of that experience shared a very intimate experience with Jesus and they would never be the same again. Last week, Pastor Glenn spoke of the progression of the mindset of the people through the latter part of this chapter, moving from being seekers, seeking out Jesus, to being complainers, complaining about some of the things that he was saying about himself, to quarrelling amongst themselves about his teachings, to eventually many of them deserting him because of his difficult teachings. Now this was the traje trajectory for the Jews and also for many of his own disciples 
And indeed, if you think about it, that is a very common trajectory for people today. But with the exception of Judas, it would not be the trajectory for the 12. Because in the midst of the storms of life, those men had seen the majesty of Jesus. And those men would go on to change the world. At the very end of chapter 6, after many of his disciples, not the 12, but many of the wider group of disciples have deserted Jesus, Jesus asks the 12 whether they want to leave too. He knew that the road ahead would not be easy for them. He knew that the storms of life would far surpass anything that they had experienced so far or anything that they would ever experience in their little boats. He says to them, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter speaks for the group, as he so often does. He's often the spokesperson for the group of disciples. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. His disciples had clearly understood the sign. The sign for them had served its purpose. And John has recorded it here for us that we likewise may have that same conviction and have life in his name. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe and we know beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the promised Messiah, our Saviour and our King. And in his power, we will put our trust through all the storms of life. Amen. Josh, if you'd like to come and lead us, we're going to sing, How Great Are You, Lord?